Well, I want to add my word of welcome to all of you here this morning, to that of Pastor Brian. We are so delighted in God's good hand on their life and their call from the Lord to go, as he said, to Asia Minor, to be a gospel risk taker, to take the gospel where it isn't, and to train men and women uh, in that venture. So Pastor Brian and Sherry, we are going to miss you. And uh, we love you very, very much, and we're so grateful for all that you uh, contribute here. And we're finding ways to stay connected to Pastor Brian more than just being his sending church. We, we want to be very, very connected to him and to Sherry. They have been a blessing, haven't they? And all of God's people would say, amen, amen. Well, <clears throat> I know that you'll want to be praying today for the Baker family, Paula and Sharon Baker. Uh, Paula and Sharon have visited here many, many times, and uh, what a beautiful couple uh, they are. We're so grateful for the ministries that God has entrusted to them over many, many years. They have had 51 and a half years of marriage together serving the Lord in Florida, in North Carolina, in so many different places, and uh, they um, uh, experienced uh, a very difficult thing last Sunday. Sharon uh, had a blood clot, and uh, on Sunday morning, she was uffer, ushered into the presence of the Lord, and her funeral is this afternoon. And so I've been with the family, uh, with Paul and their son, Jonathan, and the extended family, and so I would appreciate your prayers for them, and many of you know them. Many of you are uh, in a Bible study, or have been in Bible studies with Sharon, uh, just a tremendous, precious, precious saint of the Lord, and so... Uh, the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And uh, so something very precious to the Lord happened last Sunday when Sharon was called to be in his presence, to be with the Lord that she worshiped and that she taught so many others to worship. And so please pray for the Baker family today. Their funeral is at, uh, this funeral is at two o'clock. And so I'll be leaving here very quickly after uh, the first part of our leadership meeting. Uh, at 12.30 and, and make my way, and I would appreciate your prayers for the family. We have so many of our folks out. I was thinking about this during the week. We have 150 college students away this summer. Please don't forget to pray for them. Many of them are serving at camps. Many of them are home. Many of them are living out the gospel with their families. Some of their families don't know the Lord. Some of them have, um, are, are doing summer abroad. Some of them are working. And so please don't forget these dear, dear ones who mean so much to our church. I'm so glad they come faithfully. I'm so glad for the Arrowwoods and the team they have put together. And I don't want to forget our college students this summer. So please, let's pray for them. And then it's interesting here at Palmetto, about it, every week about 100 of you are out somewhere. Not the same 100, thankfully, but there's about 100 of you that gallivant around the country in the summer. And so let's pray for one another. Let's pray that as so many of our folks out, that the Lord would give them mercies as they travel, protect them from danger on the road, and bring them back to us safely. I don't know if you've been following what's been going on this week. Um, the eyes of the entire world have been on a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. And this past Thursday, we all received some very, very tragic, difficult news about the five lives 
that were on that submarine. And you and I can debate the wisdom and all the rest of it, but at the end of the day, there are five lives who went out into eternity this week in, in a moment. And their families have been affected by this. Many, many lives have been touched by this. The entire country has witnessed this. And so I want to pray about this this morning as we go to prayer. But there's something else that's been going on while the world's been focused on that. There are about 80 Christians who have been murdered and martyred in Manipur, India over the last couple of months. And in the last week, that conflict has heated up. And uh, there's a great persecution that's happening in that country. And churches have been defaced and homes have been uh, ravaged and burned. And 80 Christians have lost their lives. And many more have been brutalized. And so when we come to worship this morning, we come out of a world that is deeply broken. And I think our text this morning gives an answer to that. We're going to see this as we come to the book of Isaiah. So would you turn there, please, and read along with me in your Bible. I'll be reading out of the ESV, as is our custom. You may have another version. You follow along, and then let's pray that the God we are going to meet would meet with us. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called, the word for call there is the idea of singing. There is singing going on around this throne. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I want to stop right there and ask you the question, how in the world when we've just looked at what we just talked about, the death of a beloved sister. Five lives lost at the bottom of an ocean. Eighty people, eighty believers martyred. Homes, churches ravaged, burned. Multiple hundreds of others brutalized in ways that are unspeakable. How can we say that the earth is full of God's glory? But that's what the text says. And the foundations of the threshold shook, shook and the voice, at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah speaks in verse 5, And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord. Now for the first time, the Lord's going to speak. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people. And then here's the content of Isaiah's gracious, and it is a gracious message. Here's the content of the message. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. How in the world is this gracious? 
Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Still trying to see how this is gracious. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, unto the cities lie waste without inhabitant and the houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. This is sounding even less gracious as we go along, isn't it? And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again. Wow. I don't see any graciousness here. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. And then here comes the grace. The holy seed is its stump. And we're going to find out about that holy seed today as we look at this text. Would you pray with me? And uh, then Pastor Garrett will come for our children's moment. And we'll sing one more hymn together before we come and worship around the Word. Lord, we're grateful that in a world that makes no sense to us, in a world that is so full of pain, personal pain, the loss of somebody we love, national shock as we watch the lives of five people extinguished in a moment under an ocean the grief that it must cause your heart when 80 of your people have been slaughtered, their homes ravaged, their churches burned, and many, many others just brutalized in ways that are so graphic and so difficult we can hardly comprehend. And here we are today to worship you. We come out of a world like that. And somehow we need to see what Isaiah saw. We need to see you seated on your throne. We need to hear the song of the seraph as they magnify the beauty of your holiness and they remind us that your glory really does fill the earth. And even though we can't understand it, Lord, we do know that there is an altar and on that altar a a sin offering was made once and for all. And that sin offering atones for our guilt. It cleanses our sins. And it has created for you a holy seed. And we're that seed. And so, Lord, in the midst of a world that remains broken, in the midst of a world that is still tasting the curse every day, in in a world that is so marred by human sin and human depravity, Lord, you have left a holy seed. And our problem is, Lord, that we get so focused on the stuff around us, even the good stuff, that we miss what Isaiah saw. And so today I pray that for just a moment, you would remove all of the distractions in our life, all of the brokenness, all of the pain, all of the frustration, all of the irritation, all of the righteous indignation that we bring with us when we come into these doors and that you would help us to see you. Lord, I need that. I don't know how to pray this for everybody else without coming to you and saying, I need this today. And so, Lord, would your spirit do what I can't do, what nobody in this room can do? Would your spirit open our eyes 
so that we would see your glory today out of the word. And we'll pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is seated on that throne, whom we are about to encounter. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, kids, you can come on up here. We have a little challenge today. So no tripping on the way up here and leave a little bit of space in the middle. We're going to have a little challenge. So Mason, I'm going to need you to set that book down. We're going to need you, okay? We're going to arm wrestle. Yep. So Mason, do you know how to arm wrestle? <laughs> Let me show you how. Okay, we'll have you guys come over here. All right, so come up right here, Mason. We'll do this. So stand right on that side of the chair. You can set your book down and put your elbow right here. Okay, now we lock hands. And now what you're going to try to do is you're going to try to take my arm and go and touch it to the ground. And I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to touch your arm to the ground. Oh, you're strong. Oh, okay. So face me straight on. We're learning how to arm wrestle here. Okay, on your marks, get set, go. Oh, <laughs> oh, you helped him. Okay, here's what we're going to do. You know what? Maybe that wasn't fair. I'm going to ask one of the big, bad middle schoolers, Joshua. Joshua graduated from our children's church, but I asked him to come up here for this. So, uh... Let's have, okay, you want to arm wrestle? You want to arm wrestle a middle schooler? You already volunteered. Okay, but there's a secret. I'm actually going to help out over here. So we need a little bit more space. Thank you. Okay. You guys know how to do it? Okay. On your marks. Get set. Go. Oh, we got him. So in case you couldn't see, uh, we just had, what age are you? Hello? How, how old are you? Seven. Joshua, how old are you? Eleven. So we just had a seven-year-old be an 11-year-old at arm wrestling. You guys can stand up. But why is that? It's because I was helping. And this is what it's like. We're learning about the Lord is our banner. There is a banner. So just think of like uh, an army's in the middle of a war. And you see a banner that identifies who this army is. So the Israelites are holding up a banner that says the Lord is our God. The Lord is our strength. When that banner is raised, what they are saying is we're not fighting on our behalf. We're fighting on behalf of God. We're fighting in behalf of his strength. We're, we might be a seven-year-old, but we have help from, from God. And so the whole point, some of us need to, in the middle of the battle, look up and see with eyes of faith, the Lord is our banner. He is our strength. He is the one who is fighting for us. And so he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. 
So we actually have the opportunity to rejoice in the middle of the battle that we won. Because who is fighting on our behalf? The God who always wins. Whether you're in Greenville or West Asia, that banner is over us. He is our strength. He's the one fighting on our behalf, and the victory is ours. We have all authority and heaven granted to us because of Christ. So let's pray, and let's go upstairs, talk more about the Lord is our banner. We might do some more arm wrestling up there. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you that you are our banner, that you wave that, and we can look up with eyes of faith and see that you are our strength. We can have confidence in the midst of the battle, encouragement when we feel weak and when it feels like we're losing, that you are our strength and you always win. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As the kids are dismissed, I invite you to go ahead and stand. I'll sing together, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And I think the second verse ties in really well with what Pastor Garrett was saying. It starts off with, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer, strong defender of my weary heart. Let's sing this together and praise him that in our weakest, he makes us strong. Surround.
Well, as we continue worshiping together this morning, we come to that aspect of worship that God calls us to as we come around His Word. We've been singing His Word together, we've been praying His Word together, and now we have the joy of sitting under His Word. And we come to a text this morning that is one of the central texts in the Old Testament on the topic that we have been talking about now for some weeks as We've been making our way through what God has to say in His Word about our glad worship. So I'd like to ask you to take your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6. While you're turning there, I want to read you another text out of Isaiah, Isaiah 25. And I want you to listen to what Isaiah says, because I think it's going to frame up our discussion and our worship to the Lord out of what He has to say to us out of Isaiah 6. In Isaiah 25, verse 1, there is this incredible text that comes right out of Isaiah's heart. He says this, O Lord, You are my God. I will extol You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things, planned from of old, faithful and sure. So the question is, how do you come to worship? When the wonderful things that Isaiah told to you. When what's been going on in your life, when what's been going on in you and around you would certainly not be something that you would describe as wonderful or majestic or good. How do we come to worship? How do we come to bow down with the kind of joy that Isaiah talks about in chapter 25 verse 1? When we come out of a week like the week that some of us have had, I have no idea what your week was like, but in a crowd this size, I can't imagine that there have not been moments of difficulty, moments of pain, moments of concern, moments of sorrow. And here we are this morning, and we've come to bow down before the Lord. And so how does this work? Well, we have been... Now for at least two weeks, this is our third week together, looking at what God has to say about the corporate gathered worship of His people, what it should look like, what it should sound like, and what it should do in the heart of the worshiper. And as I've been looking at these texts and preparing for this series, there are two things that have stunned me. One of them I expected to find, the other was totally unexpected. And so I want to share those two things briefly with you this morning. First, I have been deeply impacted by the reminder over and over and over again in the texts that speak about the gathered worship of God's people that worship is not about the worshiper. It's about the Lord. God is the center of attention. He is the focus of worship in the Scripture. We could say it this way. Put plainly, worship is not about us. It includes us, it is offered by us, it happens through us, but it isn't about us. It's not about what we get or don't get out of worship. Sometimes when you talk to people and you say, well, how was worship this 
Last week they were like, it was awesome. I, I was so, and they go on to tell you something about what happened to them. And as wonderful as that is, that's really not what worship is about. It's not about what you and I get or don't get about worship. It's not about how we feel about worship. You may leave a worship service and say, that was great. You may leave a worship service and say, I, I didn't get anything out of that. And that may happen in the same service. Somebody may walk out of here exuberant. Somebody may walk out of here and say, I could hardly get through the service. It's not about how you feel or even how the worship benefits you or helps you. Now, to be sure, all of those things are important. And to be sure, our attitude in worship matters. Just ask Malachi the prophet. But at the end of the day, all of that is secondary. Front and center in every worship text, in every worship context that involves the gathered worship of God's people, all attention is on God and on His purposes. We could say it really bluntly this way. Sometimes what matters so much to us in worship matters much less to God. And what matters most to God seems at times to matter less to us. Worship is about God. And frankly, that's a reminder I need, and I think that's a reminder all of us need, particularly here in any context, but in our church. And so I'm thankful that the Scriptures point us in that direction. Now, I told you I expected that, and that's not a surprise to you. I mean, if you really think about worship, and you think about what you've heard your whole life about worship, and you go to these texts, it's patently evident that worship is about God more than it is about me. It involves me, it engages me, it requires my presence and my attention and my participation, but worship is not about me. It is about the Lord. It's about the Lord. Now, here's the second thing that I discovered about worship that was not as expected. One of the surprising aspects of worship that has come more sharply into focus for me as I've been preparing for this series is the gladness and the joy that God has designed into worship. And I would suggest that the texts are so overwhelming about this that you could conclude this, when we come to worship and there isn't gladness and there isn't joy, that it is deficient worship. And, and so when we come together, the Scriptures like Psalm 95, we had that for our call to worship this morning, Psalm 96, Psalm 100, are, are good textual evidence that in the gathered worship of God, God is looking for worshipers who come worshiping Him fully and joyfully and gladly and exuberantly. Listen to Psalm 100 and see if you don't see this in this very familiar text. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Listen to this. Enter His gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all 
generations. Many of you have memorized this psalm. Some of you sing or have sung this psalm, but it speaks to the exuberant, triumphant joyfulness and gladness that should mark our worship. You say, well, Pastor, I thought you said that was an unexpected thing. I kind of knew that. And I agree. That's not what was unexpected. What was unexpected to me is this. Our joy in worship gives God great joy. Our joy in worship, when we come in and we render to Him praise out of a thankful, grateful, joyful heart that is overflowing with triumphant praise for who He is and what He has done for us, when our hearts lift in glad, joyous, triumphant worship, it creates joy in God. Listen to Zephaniah as he describes this joy that God gets when you come into His courts with joy. The Lord God is in your midst. Zephaniah chapter 3. The Lord God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. That's God. God will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you. He will calm you. He will stabilize you. He will settle you by His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Have you ever thought of God singing? I mean, I think about a lot of things when I think about God. I think about His holiness. I think about His power. I think about His might. I think about His compassion. I think about His love. I think about His mercy. I think about His faithfulness. But have you ever thought about the fact that God's heart is filled with joy? That there is this exuberant joy that comes out of God when He sees His creation. There is this exuberant joy that God sees when He looks at Jesus and the Spirit of God witnesses all of this and there is this joy and gladness that marks the relationship that the Trinity has within itself. And when God watches you worship when He sees your joy and your singing as you come together and you give glad, joyful praise to Him, He sings over you with loud singing. That I didn't expect to find. And frankly, I don't quite know what to do with it. Because I don't think God stops being joyful because I'm not joyful on a Sunday morning. It's like, oh, I ruined God's joy today. I don't think God's joy is dependent on my joy. But I think the prophet Zephaniah is helping us to understand that it brings God great pleasure when you come in and and take great delight in Him and you sing His praise with great joy. And that's why this worship series that we're doing is so powerful. And it is so transformative. The the transformative power of worship, frankly, is why we're here. Uh, And so this morning, I want to, out of Isaiah 6, look at worship that transforms. Now, I reminded you at the very beginning of the series that the pastors, myself, we have some goals for this series. And I told you that we were going to review them every week. And so I want to very quickly give them to you again. And I want you to pray as a congregation, that God would actually take these words that are on the screen behind me and actually make them a reality in our lives. 
So here's what we're praying. And I, I pray this daily as I am in my uh, study working on the next sermon. I, I come to these, I keep these in front of me. Here are the things we're praying. That joyful worship would fuel our glad service to God as a church. If God joys in our worship, then we want to have joyful worship. And we need the Spirit of God to do that. Number two, that thankful worship would be our response to the grand story that God tells in the Bible. That somehow worship would move away from what we need or what we want or what we're desiring to the big story that God is telling. In our PBC 101 class, which uh, I would hope any of you who are visiting and you want to know a little bit more about our church, there's a great place to go for four Sunday mornings and we just let you see everything about the church. We, we kind of pop the hood, we open the doors, we, we let you look at everything that we are. It's a great way to find out who we are as a church. But if you end up in that class, you're going to hear this, welcome to the church that's not about you. You say, Pastor, that's not very welcoming. We actually want these people to come. I know. And I pray that God brings new people to, our, to His church. But this is a church that's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about Him. And this is why this is such an important goal, that thankful worship would be our response to the grand story God is telling in the Bible for His glory. Thirdly, that our corporate worship would glorify God and help us intentionally magnify His beauty to the nations around us. And they're around us. Just about every nation you can imagine is represented here in the upstate. And we want to represent His beauty to, that, to those nations. Number four, that our personal participation in gathered worship would transform us into the likeness of the one we worship each week. And then finally, that we would see worship as so important and so central to who we are, both individually and corporately, that we would give it our spiritual focus and our intentional engagement. And so this morning, we want to turn now to Isaiah 6 and ask the question, if worship has the power to transform us, why isn't it transforming me? You ever thought about that question? I, I don't think that what I'm saying to you is news. Uh, you, you, you know, you can read theological books, uh, you can read books on worship, and sooner or later, people are going to make the observation that we become like what we worship. Whatever it is we worship is going to shape us in profound ways. When you worship idols, this is one of the reasons that God was so bent on his people not worshiping idols, when you worship idols, you become like the idol. And the perversity is, when you make an idol that looks like you, and then you worship the idol, you start looking a lot more like you. You just put a religious permission on top of it. If you're promiscuous and your heart is filled with the lusts of your flesh, you're going to make an idol that looks a lot like that. In the ancient world, you had idols, and part of the worship was the worship of the deity through some act of sexual immorality. Where did that come from? That didn't come out of the stone. 
That came out of the person who made the stone and then said, this stone is our God and we're going to fall down and we're going to worship the stone and and we're going to worship the stone and we're going to become like the stone and those persons become more and more and more like they really are. And God said to his people, and I don't want you to do that. I want you to worship me. And when you fall down and you worship me, instead of becoming more and more entrenched in the brokenness of who you are that you built into that idol, you're going to become more and more like me. You're going to be liberated and freed from all of that. And so the question this morning is, why isn't that happening to me? I'm not even asking the question about you. I'm asking it about me. Why is it that I can come week after week after week and worship with a congregation this magnificent? We're full of our brokenness, aren't we? We come here with our brokenness. We come here with all of our baggage, and everybody has it. But there's a magnificent thing that happens when we come together. How is it I can come week after week after week as your pastor and walk out that door or walk out that door and get in my car and fundamentally not be changed? That's not a question I enjoy asking. But it's the question that has been staring out of the pages of God's Word at me for the last three weeks. How is it you can get up and preach on worship? How is it you can read all the things you're reading about worship? How is it that that you can engage in worship and remain fundamentally unchanged? I don't know about you, but that is a very uncomfortable question for me. And I think Isaiah 6 is a big part of the answer. Somebody described this chapter as a chapter that towers over the rest of the Old Testament like a majestic peak. The only chapter greater than Isaiah 6 is Isaiah 53. And so what I'd like to do this morning is I'd like to try to climb a little bit of that mountain with you and find out what was so powerful about the worship, the corporate worship that Isaiah experienced in this chapter. And so I want to begin by looking at the context for the worship experience that Isaiah chapter 6 describes. All worship, whether personal or corporate, is offered in the context of the circumstances of our life. The gathered worship of God's people is shaped by what happens in the life that we've been lived. Our lives are not lived in temples. They're lived in houses and homes. They're they're lived in fields. They're lived in marketplaces and city squares. And whatever happens in those places, that's where we come from when we come together to worship. And the opening phrases of this chapter reveal the context and the circumstances that were going on in Isaiah when he came into the temple that day at Jerusalem to worship. Let me just give them to you very quickly. As a prophet... He was concerned about the national implications of what was going on in the country that he had been called to minister in. As a priest, he was deeply bothered by the spiritual implications of the external, ritual, lifeless worship that Israel was so good at and so faithful in daily, weekly, monthly, and even yearly. And as a member of the covenant people of God, he was deeply concerned about what God had shown him 
This book is described as a vision that God gave to Isaiah. And when Isaiah saw the vision, there were parts of that vision that were deeply troubling to him because they would have impact on his own life and the life of the nation. You say, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Look at the opening phrase in the year that King Uzziah died. What was going on in that year? I mean, if we could parachute back and drop into Isaiah's world, what was going on that year in Israel? Well, this would have been a time of national uncertainty. National uncertainty. Israel and Judah, the two kingdoms that had broke apart after Solomon's death, had both enjoyed lengthy periods of peace and prosperity primarily due to two things. The quietness of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians had been quiet for a change. And they had been quiet for a long time. Maybe it was because of the revival that came in Jonah's day. Maybe that's why they were quiet. Maybe they were quiet because they had weak kings. and Maybe they were quiet because they were quiet. Who knows? They were quiet and they had been quiet for a long time. Israel and Judah had enjoyed a, a phenomenal period of peace and prosperity under two kings who had very lengthy reigns. In the north, there was an evil king named Jeroboam II. This is the king uh, that was on the throne when Jonah ministered. And under his reign, God in his mercy granted great prosperity and great peace, even in spite of Jeroboam's wickedness. In the southern kingdom, there had been a king on the throne for 52 years. You can read about his story in 2 Kings 15 and in 2 Chronicles 26. His name was Azariah. He's described here and named here as Uzziah. He had had a phenomenal reign. Under the reign of these two kings, the nation had regained its status and its material wealth. And literally, the the lands that had been lost to Assyria had been regained. The kingdom had not been as large or as in good shape since the days of Solomon. Life was good. The economy prospered. But times were changing. In the northern kingdom, Jeroboam had died and a massive squabble had come up about who was going to sit on that throne. And here in the text... Uzziah had just died, and he would immediately be followed by a weak son, and then an even weaker son named Ahaz, and we're going to meet Ahaz in chapter 7 of the book of Isaiah. And if all of this political instability were not enough, the giant in the north was waking up. Assyria was back on the march. They're going to bring their army into the northern kingdom. And by the time the book of Isaiah is done, the armies of Sennacherib are going to be parked around the walls of the city of Jerusalem. And all of this prosperity and all of this peace is done. National uncertainty. Can you relate to that? There was spiritual formality In addition to all the national uncertainty, Isaiah was confronted daily by the empty, ritualistic, formulaic worship that God's people were so good at offering. What mattered to them was form. Making sure the rituals were done, the sacrifices were offered, the washings, the prayers, the praises, 
all in the house of worship. And they were very good at this. Sometimes we're very good at that, aren't we? We know how to come to church. We know how to dress. We know what to say and not to say. Isaiah weekly, daily, every Sabbath, every day when the prayers were offered in the morning and in the afternoon or the evening prayers, he watched the people come and they were good at bad worship. What they were not good at was living out that worship in their life. They didn't live according to the Torah, the moral and ethical expectations that God had expected. And Isaiah knew how God felt about that worship. And he actually wrote it down for the people. Listen to what he has to say in chapter 1. God says, when you spread out your hands, in other words, when you bring your hands to me in worship, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourself. Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Stop doing evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What a frightening thing. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Can you imagine coming to a place like this Sunday after Sunday and we pray many prayers corporately together and God says you can pray till your voice dries up. I am not hearing those prayers. This is a stunning thing for God to say in the year that King Uzziah died. National uncertainty, spiritual formality, and personal difficulty. Isaiah knew something that people didn't. He knew that judgment was on the way. And as a prophet, he had the difficult, uncomfortable job of making a nation comfortable in their sins, uncomfortable with their sins. Do you realize, folks, that that's what the elders and pastors of your church are called to do? When you come to the equip hour and you listen to qualified men and women who stand up sometimes and share the Word of God in some way with you in a ladies' meeting or in our equip hour, their job, their mission from God is to comfort you by making you uncomfortable. It sounds so counterintuitive to our joy, doesn't it? Why do we come to certain churches we go to? We come because it's comfortable. We like to be comfortable. We love this church. Why do you love this church? Oh, they use a certain version of the Bible, and we're comfortable. In fact, we left our other church for this, because we were uncomfortable, and we wanted to be comfortable. Oh, we just love this kind of music, whether it's this or that, and it's comfortable. We like the way the pastor dresses. It's comfortable. And the last thing worship should be for you is comfortable. God did not design worship to be comfortable. He designed worship, as we're going to see, to be devastating. You say, Pastor, this makes no sense. Well, hang in there. It didn't make any sense to me either. But by the time Isaiah's done, I think you'll see what I'm talking about. Isaiah had this difficult 
task of making comfortable people uncomfortable and calling them to repent and to respond to one of the most gracious invitations in the Scripture. Listen to the invitation. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You say, well, pastor, that's a great invitation. Who could refuse it? The entire nation. And by the way, that invitation is given to you week after week after week. And how many times do you leave a worship service and you've refused to respond to something gracious God has said to you? And so Isaiah comes into the temple to worship with a heavy heart, a burdened soul, and a fearful mind, burdened over what's coming from the nation, grieving the loss of a king who also happened, by the way, to be his cousin. And fearful of what God had called him to do. And so he stands with all of this grief and all of this fear and all of this burden before the Lord to worship. And isn't that how sometimes we come? We come burdened. We come fearful. Sometimes we come troubled and grieved, stricken. And we enter into this place and somebody like me stands up and said, Hey, let's worship. It's great to be here. And it's everything you can do. You just keep the tears from falling down your face. Hey, let's lift our voices. And you're like, I I can hardly even lift my head this morning. You ever felt that way? This is the context in which Isaiah's worship happened. But what happened when he got there? That's the content of the worship that transforms. And when he got to the place of worship in Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 3, there's an amazing thing that happened. As a priest, Isaiah had the wonderful opportunity to stand in the presence of God and officiate. And that's what he did. He went into the holy place and he looked around and there was the menorah that represented the light of the Torah that would guide the nation, that the nation was completely walking in the darkness. Uh, There was the table of showbread that God had placed there to commit himself to caring for the well-being of the nation. And, And it was the table around which they would have fellowship. And then, of course, there was this wonderful golden altar of incense that he was standing before, that he was about to drop incense on, that represented the the intercessory prayers of God's people and God's commitment to answer those prayers. All of this stuff was in the holy place. And it was the stuff that was always there. The menorah was always there. The showbread was always there. The golden altar was always there. And by the way, when you come to worship, there's stuff that's always there. We always sing. We always pray. Sometimes we fellowship around the table of the Lord's Supper. We sit in the light of God's Word, the menorah that stands before us and shines upon us as God lights our way with the light of His Word. And we come in and we stand there and we do our stuff like Isaiah was doing our stuff and the menorah's there and the table's there and the altar's there and it's the stuff that happens every time we come in. And in a moment, 
all of that disappeared. The curtain that separated where Isaiah was, that stood behind the great golden altar of incense, that curtain vanished. And instead of looking at what he expected to see, and uh, the Ark of the Covenant with the cherubim, the seed of God, he actually saw a great temple. And in that great temple was a great throne. And on that great throne was someone seated there who was so majestic, all of heaven was celebrating. He saw a vision of the sovereign. Israel's little king had just died, but Israel's great king was still on the throne. And he is a great king. Isaiah says, I saw the king. That's who I saw. Unmatched in his glory. Unmatched in his majesty. The entire temple was filled with the train of his robe. Not the temple that is in heaven. The temple that is heaven. All of heaven is filled with the glory and the majesty and the might and the authority of the one sitting on that throne. In fact, later on, he's going to be described as the Lord of hosts. The sovereign over armies. This is what Isaiah sees. And then, here's what he hears. He hears the voice of the seraphs. There are majestic angelic beings that that when you look at them, they look like they're flaming with fire. They have six wings. Two they use to display reverence. Two they use to display humility. And two they use to obey. And out of their mouth is coming a song that they're singing back and forth to each other. And the song is all about the one on the throne. And what they're singing about is the majestic beauty of His holiness. And the song is so pleasing to the Lord. It is so beautiful in the ears of the Lord that His presence, that's the idea of smoke filling the temple, His presence rests in that heaven temple that we're reading about. But the seraphs say the whole earth is full of that glory. Now how in the world can they say that? May Isaiah just come out of that world and there was no glory there. Even God's own people who had the menorah, who had the table of showbread, who had the altar of incense, even God's own people weren't living in the light of that glory. How could these seraphs say the earth is filled with the glory of the Lord? Because they stood on a plain where they could see far beyond what our little eye can see. And by the end of the book, Isaiah is going to be saying the whole earth is going to come and render worship to this one and his glory is going to fill the earth. That is what the seraphs saw. You know why you and I miss that? Let me just say it this way. You know why I miss that? Because we settle for lesser glories. What makes you happy in worship? What makes you glad that you came to be with God's people? When you leave a service and your heart has been stirred, what is it that makes you glad? And many, many times what makes me glad is a lesser glory. It's not a bad glory. It is a lesser glory. It's like going to the Grand Canyon and and somebody says, Oh, I heard you went to the Grand Canyon this summer. Yeah, it was great. Well, what did you see? Well, I saw, there was this wonderful building I went in and I saw all these pictures. 
Yeah? What else did you see? Well, that was it. Got my car and went home. No, wait. Okay, hang on a second. You went to the Grand Canyon, and you went in the visitor center. Yeah, that's, that's what it was called, visitor center. And, and you went in there, and you saw a bunch of pictures. Oh, yeah, and there were all these things about hikes and trails, and they had these wonderful pictures and some little videos that we could watch. It was awesome. Did you actually go out of video? Yeah, I went, I went out of the visitor center because I had to go uh, to the car to get something, and then we, we had to leave, so I got my family, got in the car, and off we went. Did you ever go to the canyon? There's a canyon? That's why there's a visitor center. You don't go and build a visitor center in a desert where there's no hole. And they take pictures of a hole and put it in the visitor center and say to the whole world, come to the visitor center about a hole that's not here. That's really dumb. You, you build a visitor center because there's a massive canyon out there that's breathtaking. And we come to worship week after week after week and we stay in the visitor center. Oh, that was wonderful. Pastor Brian did such a good job. I just love it when he gets up. Oh, and Pastor Ben, you ought to hear his benedictions. They are marvelous. And when we sing together, it's just we sing these wonderful songs. We have this great... Oh, and the people are so friendly, most of them. And, and we, you know, we, we, we worship in a gym, but it's, it's okay. It's good. It's good. It's good. You're going to love it. You're in the visitor center with all that. Get out of the visitor center. Go see the canyon. That's exactly where Isaiah is. And some of you, when you go to the canyon, you're so obsessed by the railing. Look at the chip in the paint on that railing there. I can't believe the Grand Canyon National Monument. They can't even paint the railing. And you come home and somebody says, did you see the Grand Canyon? No, but I sure saw the chip in the paint. Somebody ought to tell those people to get a paintbrush out there and paint the railing. And that's how some of you come to worship. You come in, it's like, I, this didn't go well today. That didn't. I get so tired week after week. I keep telling those pastors they need to do X, Y, and Z. You're looking at the chip in the paint of the railing. And all of a sudden, Isaiah's eyes are, are, are lifted past all of that to a temple that is in heaven. And when he sees what he sees, there is a response that transforms. You know what the response is? Well, there's a cosmic response in verse 4. So powerful is the song of the seraphim, so joyous in its acclamation. The entire temple shakes. It resounds with their singing. So pleasing to the Lord was what they were doing, the joy that was being displayed in them toward Him, that His glory filled the temple. Let me ask you a question. If a visitor came into our worship services and listened to the way we sing week after week, would they describe it this way? Joyful, glad, exuberant. I mean, just... We are just throwing our hearts into worship because we see the Lord. Or do we come and we're like, okay, time to stand up. Okay, we got to sing the song. All right, let me act like I'm singing here. And then I'm, I wish we could sit down more. I wish we could stand up more. I wish we sang a different song. I don't like that song. We should have sung this song. I mean, the whole theme is worship. Can't they put a worship song in there? There's way too many worship songs in this thing. I mean... 
Well, I can't say that out loud because, uh, you know, pastor's been speaking about worship, so i got to look like I'm worshiping, so I'm going to stand up here, and I'm going to just worship. What if for one Sunday we just cut loose? Pastor, cut loose? This is a Baptist church. I know, we're going to get the quiet room in heaven. You're going to get the quiet award when we get there. God's going to say it. Now, for the quiet award, Palmetto Baptist Church. What if for one Sunday, just one, everybody came in and we said, we're not going to be embarrassed. We're not going to worry what anybody around me thinks. If I want to throw my hand up and worship, I'm going to throw my hand up and worship. If I want to just belt out the song, even if I'm not on tune, I'm going to do it. I actually want to engage in this kind of worship. Some of you be going, oh, what's going on here? I knew it. I, I knew it. I smelled it. I smelled it a year ago. I smelled it two years ago. I smelled it. I smell it now. And God says, wait a minute. I'm singing over that. Zephaniah 3. There was a cosmic response, and then there was a personal response. You know what Isaiah did? He did something amazing. You know what he's been doing in chapter 5? Six times he's been looking around and he's been pronouncing woes. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. I've given you notes, and, and there are six verses in chapter 5 where these woes are pronounced on other people. You know, we have a lot of woes, don't we, that we pronounce on people? We listen to talk show, and all of a sudden we're pronouncing woes on our political leaders. It's terrible what they're doing in our country. Terrible. We pronounce woes on the people that are holding parades with rainbow flags. That's just awful. That's terrible. It's an abomination in the sight of the Lord. Woe to them. And woe to these people over here. Woe to that person over there. And then you get into the kind of worship that Isaiah is experiencing. You know what you say? All of that goes away. Woe is me. My eyes have seen that king. My ears have seen the beauty of what the seraphs are seeing. My eyes, my ears, Lord, woe is me, for I am undone. I live in the middle of a people with unclean lips, and I am a person of unclean lips. There's the cosmic response, and then there's the personal response, and let me end with this. There's the divine response. You know what the divine response is? Compassion. Compassionate cleansing. God looks over to one of those seraphs, and he interrupts the song they're singing, and he says to them, I just heard something that moved my hesed, my covenant loyalty. And I want you to go to that altar. The altar there is probably not the altar of incense that Isaiah is standing before. It's probably the great altar because there are coals of something that has been burned on that altar. And whatever's been burned on that altar is what God uses to declare Isaiah righteous. It wasn't the coal that made him righteous. It was what God said about Isaiah that made him righteous. And he told the seraph to say it. You take that coal and you touch it to Isaiah's lips. 
And instead of pain, it's going to bring comfort. Instead of sorrow, it's going to bring joy because when that coal touches your lip, your sins have been forgiven. Your guilt has been removed. You have been atoned for. You have been cleansed. That's where it starts. You know where transformation starts? That's where it starts. It doesn't start when you and I come in and we're so thankful to God for how we've been able to live and these sins that we didn't commit, that those people are committing. It starts, it starts every Sunday when we come into this place with hearts so full of thankfulness and so full of joy for who God is and what He has done that we give glad, exuberant worship. And then the light of the Torah, the Word of God, shines on us and we see God and we see ourselves and we say to the Lord, Lord, I am undone. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you told God you were undone? We're going to look at the rest of Isaiah 6 next Sunday, but when was the last time you came into a worship service and in the joyful worship of your heart, the Word of God began to show you that you were not like the one you worship? You don't think like He thinks. You don't respond like He responds. You, you, you don't value what He values. By the way, that's what it means to be Christ-like. You look at everybody else around and you say, they're deplorable people. We are the righteous remnant. And then you come and God does something very gracious. He lets you see God in all of His beauty, in all of His glory. And when you see God, there's only one response. God. Say, Pastor, I can't hear you. I know. And I can't hear you. But God can. When was the last time you honestly, in gathered worship, bowed your head and you said to God, I'm broken. I'm just going to quit trying. I'm broken. We do so much died our brokenness, died our baggage, died our luggage. And sometimes God just breaks it all apart. I want you to know if you're a visitor here, you're in a safe place because you're in a room full of broken people. We got our baggage. And it's, it's as nasty as yours. Everybody in this room's got back. I've got it. Every deacon here has it. Every elder here has it. We are a church of broken people and we bring our baggage to church. So if you're sitting there going, I don't know if I can tell. uh, No, 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 no. It's okay. You come and you worship and you see God. And you say to God, I'm broken. I'm not going to deny it anymore. I'm not going to try to fix it. I'm done duct taping this. I'm done bailing wire this. I am undone. I am a man or a woman of unclean lips. Don't be surprised if the God of heaven doesn't say to a seraph, 
go get a coal from off that altar. I want you to go to Powdersville. That's a little south of Greenville. And I want you to go to this little gym. It's on a little hill. It's by the Wendy's across from the Walmart, in case you're wondering, Mr. Seraph. And when you get there, I want you to go right into the service, and I want you to take this coal, and I want you to touch so-and-so's mouth because their guilt has been atoned for. Their sins have been forgiven. If it could happen to Isaiah in the holy place of the temple of Israel around the gathered worship as people were waiting for him to come out like in the day of Zechariah, it can happen today for you. Lord, we want to give you thanks for this magnificent text. Lord, we don't know what to say other than this is magnificent. And we haven't even covered all of it yet. Lord, we, there's so much more to see in this glorious mountain peak that you've raised up in the middle of our Old Testament. And at the top of this mountain, we find you. And at the bottom of the mountain, we find ourselves. And somehow, in a moment, you have brought us to the very top to be with you, and you've cleansed us, and you've atoned for us. Lord, we're all broken here this morning, and you know our brokenness is even more than we do. And some of the folks that that are worshiping with us this morning have lost hope. Their hearts are full of grief. Their, Their hearts are burdened. Their lives are full of fear. And they need a coal from the altar. And you're the only one because you're in charge of that. We're not. You are. So, Lord, would you do that for us, we pray. Would you make our worship such today that it would change us for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.